when you want to attribute success to yourself, the best way to do it is in a small team and in a company that's looking to, you know, get a high potential targets. Yeah. Welcome to the Powder Keg Podcast, the show that plugs you into the massive opportunities in startups and tech hubs beyond Silicon Valley that are exploding with potential. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and in today's episode, I'm talking with Mike Assem, partner at venture capital firm M25. As a partner at M25, Mike has participated in nearly 100 investments in early stage companies across the Midwest. Outside of his responsibilities at M25, Mike is also a Coffin Fellow and a board member of BLCKVC. I'm not sure if that's pronounced Black VC, but uh, it's BLCKVC, leading initiatives in the Midwest to connect, engage, empower, and advance Black venture investors. Before joining M25, Mike founded the Anvil, a co-working space and startup incubator on Purdue University's campus, where he helped launch the first Purdue startup to be accepted to Y Combinator. He and I actually grew up together in West Lafayette, Indiana, uh, so you'll hear a little bit about that. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here's Mike Assem. Mike, thanks for being here today, man. Where are you yeah. dialing in from? I know that that's a rhetorical question uh, for those that are watching the video version of this podcast, but uh, where are you dialing in from? Yeah, I'm, I'm coming in hot from uh, Bucktown neighborhood in Chicago. Nice. Um, well, and for those that don't know uh, the, our, our context, you and I kind of grew up together, at least for part of our childhoods, uh, going as far back to uh, Mrs. Thompson's class in kindergarten at mm -hmm. uh, well, what the heck was the name of our high school? Cumberland. Yeah. Cumberland Elementary. They don't do Cumberland Crusaders anymore. They don't? No. They are now the Cumberland Bucket Fillers. Bucket Fillers? This is a fact. I knew I'd shock you <laughs> as I was sad. shocked not too that long ago. That's a sad though. fact. <laughs> I like the alliteration of Cumberland Crusaders more than the Cumberland Bucket Fillers. Yeah, well, for another day. I guess, I'm, I guess I'm a proud bucket filling alum. Um, but I, I actually kind of wanted to take it, take it back uh, to those days because I think you and I shared a, a similar passion for technology back in those days. And I remember your, your bedroom as a kid being filled with like the coolest like hardware tech, um, at least of all of my friend group at the time. Um, do you remember when you first kind of got into tech and like what it was about technology that kind of sparked your interest? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great story, like fact that not many people know about me, but um, <laughs> to, be, to this day, my dad is thoroughly disappointed I'm not an engineer and still doesn't understand or believe that I have any transferable skills. So um, <laughs> yeah, I had Lego Mindstorms, I had all the connects and all the awesome stuff and I just loved building stuff. I mean, I just thought like, things that like creating, building, innovating was, was just super fun and making things work, figuring out how things work was super cool. So. Well, and you, you kind of um, caught the entrepreneurial bug early too, because I remember at one point you were the competition in school when we were making those like beaded lizard gecko things. I don't even know what you would call those. What did you call those? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. I, uh, yeah, they were just beaded things. <laughs> <laughs> there are beaded things that kids were willing to pay money for. My my flagship pro product was the Mr. Hankey. Like no one had designed a Mr. Hankey. There was no blueprint for Mr. Hankey. That's right. I had, I had the Mr. Hankey. That was my 
that was my secret sauce. Tracy. Yeah. I, I, I think that's when you really pulled ahead on the competition there and, and just, you, you created your own category of uh, beaded Christmas poos. As, as one does. Um, what was it? Do you, do you remember what got you into entrepreneurship and even like thinking in that way of like, Hey, I could make money doing this. Like, how did you come about with that? Do you remember? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I think it's just something that I always had an itch for. Um, just the idea of one plus one could equal three, figuring out how to, you know, make, create, you know, create value. Right. Um, I think what was a, was a fast, fascinating thing for me. I, I shared a story recently where uh, you probably don't know this cause you weren't, close enough in my territory at the time, but um, there was actually a story to be told of me as a, a neighborhood, um, not toddler, but not preteen yet, where all our neighborhood kids, I got us together and said, hey, I bet we could increase our buying power. We just pooled our, pooled our money, pulled our, pulled our allowance capital, and, uh, and then just, you know, kind of funded things together. Um, you know, when my parents found out, because Judith, my sister, told them uh, that we had cash buried in our backyard from all the neighborhood's kids, uh, that didn't last very long, um, and I can totally understand why. But yeah, just something something about the way my my brain works, I guess. Well, it's it's definitely interesting to know that context. I didn't know that about you, which is hilarious <laughs> because I don't think you were more than a mile away living on Linda Lane. Um, but you know, that's that's like may as well be in a different city when you're a kid and don't have a right don't have a car. I wasn't allowed to bike that far yet, Matt. Yeah, same, same. We had <laughs> we had more protective parents, I think. Um, that's really cool, man. I, I didn't know that. Uh, that. That's interesting context for what you're doing now at M25 Group, investing in, in startups. And I, I know that was something you were drawn to very early on when startups became more of a quote-unquote thing um, and, and even ran a chapter of what eventually became Powder Keg, or at least the community that kind of is the power behind Powder Keg back in uh, probably, I don't know, 2009 or 10 even, um, back yeah. in the day when you were at Purdue. Um, Tell me a little bit about your environment then and, and what was going on for you that um, kind of led to, I, I know some of the things of where you are today at M25 Group. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's interesting. I, um, at the time at Purdue, when I was there, the entrepreneurial community was, wasn't what it is today, right? I think that, that's changed a lot uh, over the past several years. Um, and there really wasn't a, t a ton of community. As you know, like I kind of jumped at the chance to like help out with Burge in West Lafayette at the time. And also I had been working on something called The Anvil, which became a co-working space and incubator at Purdue. Um, but even prior to that, I was trying to figure out community and I actually spent time in a program called The Bold Academy, which ran, I think once in San Francisco. And it was basically like, um, is a real world where they're in the house, right? Like, are we're in the house yeah, yeah. Um, of all people who were interested in social and tech entrepreneurship? And at the time, you know, I, I really wanted, really believed I wanted to be just to start a company and, and build a tech company. And just being able to spend, you know, 10 days with um, a bunch of really inspiring other people from very different paths um, and be mentored by, you know, Steve Jobs, former private chef and the guy who used to fly. Warren Buffett around in his private plane all the time. And uh, Justin Rosenstein is the founder of Asana, um, which at the time we didn't know was, you know, the unicorn that it is, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that was all really fascinating for me and continued to, to kind of enforce something in my mind, which is the power of relationships and the power of people, right? And, you know, I'll say this to the ends of the earth. 
VC tech, it's, it's, a, it's a people-driven business. And uh, we talk about it like it's finance, but, but for me, it's, it's a cluster of human behavior. Yeah, 100%. What was the uh, culture of Bold Academy like? Uh, like, what are the, some of the things that you think made that micro community yeah. magical? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, first of all, it's like a, a curio- like a passion for curiosity, passion for learning, um, seeking to understand, truth seeking, fulfillment. I mean, I, one of the best examples I could think of from a culture standpoint is I knew at the time in Lafayette, West Lafayette, Indiana, um, there could be a very different experience if I was sitting in a coffee shop with someone and I told them, you know, if I'm in San Francisco in Alamo Square Park, I might say, hey, I've got this awesome idea. I'm going to chase it. I'm going to raise VC dollars. And then six months later, nine months later, I come back to you and I'm like, yeah, I failed. You know, in Nemo Square Park, you're probably going to, the person's probably going to spit back to me. Oh, cool. What'd you learn? What are you going to do next? Right. In in West Lafayette, it's like, oh, so you're still an employed and a failure. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, but that's real. That, that was like a very real thing. And one of the very first things I wanted to be an influencer on or impactful within my community at Purdue and at, at, in West Lafayette was just that tolerance for failure. And, you know, I wasn't the only one, right? I, I would, I surrounded myself by folks like Christian Anderson, there's High Alpha at the time, KNA, Studio Science, et cetera, right? You know, folks like Christian and others, yourself included, right? Where I had already caught that bug and understood like, you know, tolerance of failure is a key foundational point to being able to explore enough to find and build things that are truly disruptive in, in the marketplace. Yeah, that's, that's a great thing to call out. And I, even just you bringing up that story had brought so many flashbacks of those kinds of conversations uh, early on in my own career. Um, And I feel like the culture in the Midwest in a lot of ways has shifted for the better. Um, Those like small little groups of, you know, individuals who are more comfortable with failure has now become more of a community and, and bigger clusters uh, whether that's in West Lafayette, Indiana, Indianapolis, or Chicago, even uh, obviously a bigger cluster in Chicago, um, it's been really cool to see that that kind of evolve. Um, yeah. And I want to get into some of the trends that you're seeing because I know you get to see a lot of that. You talk to a lot of founders all over the Midwest, um, but I, I, I do want to come back to sort of that time at uh, at Purdue and kind of how you made that leap into venture. What did that part of your career journey look like? Um, and were there any key individuals that kind of helped you along that path? Yeah. Um, well, that's a great question. I mean, I think it really stemmed from the, the work at the Anvil um, that I was doing and, and the community I was surrounding myself with. So mentors, um, like a gentleman named Rusty Ruff, um, who um, is originally from the Midwest but now resides in, in the West Coast. Um, so what did you learn from Rusty? So Rusty um, is a phenomenally successful person and very eclectic. He's a liberal artist like myself, um, but has done extremely well in technology. He worked for Electronic Arts, Pepsi as an executive, um, started and sold companies. He's, he's on the board of companies like Glassdoor, uh, previous board chairman for the Grammy Foundation. So, I mean, Rusty's resume is long and eclectic and super fascinating, including working on the 2008 Obama campaign, right? So um, Rusty really taught me the importance of personal life fulfillment and understanding um, that if you can look at life as a portfolio of time um, and, and allocating that time to buckets that are fulfilling in a holistic life scale rather than just like 
a work loop trajectory, um, you're gonna you're gonna have a whole lot of different decisions you're gonna probably make along your journey. Um, uh, guys like Richard Elfs, um, who's also a Purdue alum and former partner at Foundation Capital, um, you know, same same thing. Uh, Rich was has been a mentor to me for years and is someone who, um, particularly as I've thought about navigating between my passions as an operator and, and a VC, like what actually makes me tick and and how to be the best version of myself in that growth tra trajectory too. So these are relationships that I formed through Purdue, but also um, through my work um, building the Anvil. Um, to, to do the Anvil, for for example, my, my customer discovery process started with talking at home and then literally visiting co-working spaces and incubators all the way from 1776 in DC, all the way to plug and play and, and Skydeck and, and Stardex and, you know, Cupertino and, and, Sun, and Sunnyvale and um, Berkeley. So um, going from there, right, working with founders, building my relationships, understanding um, the Anvil allowed me to get known for something because uh, one of our first companies, Mamir, what became the first food company to go to Y Combinator. Mamir has now been acquired by HackerRank, a, an awesome tech company, now, now still based in Indianapolis. Um, and, uh, you know, when that happened, people assumed I knew something about tech and that helped me out a lot. And uh, uh, Chicago Ventures, uh, a gentleman by, named Ezra Galston, uh, offered me a chance to be a student fellow at Chicago Ventures. And, and uh, that was fascinating for me, just seeing that side of the table and Throughout my career, as I continued as an operator for a venture-backed company and continued as a director for the Purdue Research Foundation, um, my ability to understand what was happening in the, in the you know, VC startup environment as well as flesh out my network and have what became a very proprietary and valuable network for sourcing deals, helping companies, et cetera, made me, uh, put me in a great path to, to enter the VC space. So. When, when you're looking at all those kind of different patterns, um, I'm sure you were seeing lots of failures because you're in the startup space yeah. um, and you're seeing the ones like Mimir uh, and, and Prosman on the podcast, uh, of course, in the past. Um, and I think you actually initially connected me with Pra when he was going through one of your Whoa. virtual, virtual accel accelerators. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm wondering what kind of patterns that you saw with startups um, that you still use today when, you know, vetting companies to invest in for M25 group, or mm -hmm. if you were to re refer a friend to work at a startup, you know, what is it that people should be looking out for? What, which kinds of uh, patterns or traits or cultural attributes do you tend to look for in companies yeah. or founders? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like I think anyone who has to build a, to believe they can build a startup company has to have at least some amount of ego. I mean, to be completely, it, it sounds weird, but it, I, I believe it to be completely true because if you want to believe you can do something that's according to the marketplace is to this point nearly impossible because <laughs> that's what it takes to build a, you know, venture returning outcome type company. Um, you've got to have at least some sort of like outsized confidence. Now, if that's not ma matched with an appropriate amount of humility, we've got problems, right? And so you, this, this, this weird, you know, special balance of, I think like just enough ego and, a lot of humility is, is paramount for me. Um, but in addition to that, I think, and maybe even more important than that is, um, for me, great founders are those that are um, phenomenal truth seekers. Like mm -hmm. they can't handle, like if it's not the truth, they don't want it, inconvenient or not, 
right? Like if they find out the truth about the market is this, and that's not great, they're fine with that because at least they know the truth. And now they know what wall to knock down or, or what not to chase, right? What not to waste time on. Mm. Um, I can, mentioned this. Can you tell me a, a story or give me an example of like how you might be able to identify truth seeking? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in a, in a pitch with a founder, um, you know, we can ask some pretty real questions about, okay, what's happening here. Yeah. And the, the, just the way they respond to that, you know, it could be like, well, you know, we think it might be this, or, um, if we point out something that's clearly a vanity metric and they are disagreeing or, or maybe, or maybe trying to point it as something that, you know, isn't what it is. Um, that's, that's the case. I think when founders are pretty clearly able to come and say like, look, we, we get that there's a lot to validate here. Um, and unfortunately this is, you know, show me where you've learned. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that, that's a huge plus. I, I love seeing the, you know, the chart that's got a couple squigglies, but it's basically that, you know, I love that chart. That up um, and to the right overall, but isn't yeah. perfectly up into the right. Right. But, but I like seeing these squiggles where it's like, you can point to the, the inflection point and tell me what happened and why it happened and what you learned. And it's not some sugar coated or like, Oh, like all of a sudden our customers figured it out. It's like, no, it's like, actually we uh, it did this because we, our customers didn't actually want this. Like <laughs> we spent a bunch of time on it. They didn't care. And uh, we were forcing something down their throats. They didn't want, but then when we pulled this out and blah, 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 you know, our customers are here. I think just actual like thoughtful, genuine insight that, doesn't necessarily always paint you in the best light is your best way to show me that mm-hmm. um, you're, you're about the truth. You're not, you're not wasting your time on anything else. What about um, people who are maybe looking to uh, join a tech company? Like maybe they're already in the Midwest and they're like, Hey, I hear I, I want to jump into tech tech still hiring like crazy, despite there being, uh, I don't know if the fact that there's a recession is a, political topic or not. I'm not trying to create any uh, bipartisan convos here necessarily, but um, you know, despite what's going on with the pandemic, we can all agree that there's a pandemic going on. Um, Tech companies are still hiring. And so you've got a lot of people that are looking to get into tech who weren't in tech previously. Meanwhile, at least what we're seeing here at Powder Keg is you've got people in the Bay Area in New York City who are like, man, the Midwest is on fire. And like, wait, what kind of house can you get for a million dollars? That's insane. (laughs) You know, like I've got a one bedroom apartment for a million dollars here. Maybe, maybe I want to be close to mom and dad again, or maybe I just want a better quality of life. Um, What would you say to those people who are looking to find the right company to work for? um, Whether it's a startup or a scale up. Yeah. I mean, I would ask yourself really like, are you a long-term incentivized person or a short-term incentivized person? Um, and I would ask yourself, you know, how much of your like life equity do you have to kind of give up right now in exchange for potential value you could extract from a startup role? Yeah. Um, because it's, it's real. I mean, if you're one of the first five or first 10, buckle up. <laughs> like if you're one of the first 500, um, cool. Like you're probably going to get pretty good benefits <laughs> like, right. or, or even benefits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think like, that's just a realist, like, you know, gut check thing. I mean, uh, startup startups are very romantic, um, but most of them fail. Um, some in flames of glory, some's in, some in less glory. Um, and uh, I would just think like you as a, as an individual need to think about what you're passionate about. 
and hey, if you're ready for a challenge and and look, I would also say this, if you want to uh, advance yourself in your career and prove yourself in a way that could set you up, not just like financially for life, but career trajectory, um, think about it. Because guess what? You, when you want to attribute success to yourself, the best way to do it is in a small team and in a company that's looking to, you know, get a high potential targets. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's cool, man. And, and I, I think that's a really good gut check for people. Uh, there are a lot of people that are just like, Ooh, startups. And they go in and, you know, startups a lot of times is getting punched in the face repeatedly. And they're like, why is, why is this happening? Why did everyone say this was exciting? Um, and well, that's not their DNA. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's not just the getting punched at the mouth. It's getting like, you go up and down the roller coaster yep. and in a startup, you don't have the benefit of a just like apathetic, okay week, like, or, or day, <laughs> you have highs and lows. I, I talk about it like emotional attrition because that volatility, volatility does get to you. Yeah. Um, uh, I can speak for myself when we, when the writing was on the wall for um, the company that I was a part of as, as a, as a first employee, um, we, as, as, as we wound down, as I wound down kind of my, my day to day with that, I, I just unplugged for, I think it was, I gave myself three months where I was like, I need to recharge and like, I can let people know I'm a free agent, but like my, my heart, my mind, my body, my soul, my spirit, like it was in, it was on fire for the entirety of that time period. And you know, it can be incredibly rewarding. Like I can't think of a more rewarding work experience, but you just have to be ready for it. And not everyone needs to do that. So. Absolutely. I, I can totally relate to that. I, I, there are a couple of different startups I was involved with where I took three months off afterwards. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can definitely relate to that. Um, well, you, you mentioned the sort of like ups and downs and the emotional uh, toll I, you've, published some awesome articles recently and, and you've got an awesome stub sub stack going, um, as well. And I want to get into that, but, um, I just saw recently that article that you published on VentureBeat um, mm -hmm. that was trending and I, lots of great chatter about it, um, on social, et cetera. Uh, talk to me a little bit about why founder wellness is something that right now you're deciding to write about and why do you think that's important for the health of a company as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to touch on both of those. So as far as why well, I'm touching on it right now, it, it's primarily because, you know, I'm looking at the macro environment. We're all in the same, this is an insane time where everyone on planet earth is going through some, some, some hot garbage moments together. Right. And it's tough. The uncertainty alone is, is, is draining and stressful. So you talk about the whole world, everyone equal, um, anxiety baseline is higher. And then you go to founders of companies or executives of companies or even just employees and companies. And you, you think about you're, you're also peaking stress already. So now is a time where I felt called to um, write more proactively and talk more proactively about this particular issue. But it's something I've always cared about. And, and M25 has always cared about too. We are not super unlike a lot of VCs in that we believe the team is the most valuable asset of a company, especially at the early stage, which is when we get involved. I think we're really serious about this and to the point where I've said it multiple times, there's no better way to, to add risk to your seed stage investment than overly disincentivize a team 
from the beginning when you believe that team is the most value asset of your business, <laughs> right? Yeah. So in, in other words, like that could take the form of uh, predatory terms in a term sheet or simply put, you know, uh, taking too much equity too early, um, having a board cadence and governance structure that adds unnecessary stress to the team. Anything that's not blocking and tackling for someone who's literally um, trying to do what's impossible um, can, can be tough. And I think as investors, it's important to understand that if you do believe that your team, uh, just thinking about it purely objectively, if you do believe that your team, the team of that company is the most valuable asset of that business and the most important pillar of driving likelihood success, then you should be a good steward of that asset. You should be finding ways to make sure that that thing is, those people are, are as protected and taken care of and the best versions of themselves as they possibly can, just like you would with making sure they have a healthy balance sheet, right? Yes. So, I mean, it's, it's something that, and I could go, you know, I could talk more about just from a values perspective, why I feel that way. Um, and as someone who, you know, I, I think like generally I, I really care for people and, and one of my favorite parts of my, my job is I get to choose who I work with on all aspects. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally that's, that's something that I hope more investors and, and founders can hear and, and take heart on. That's awesome, man. I, I think that's really good advice. If you were to say like one thing that you've repeated the most to founders, uh, is there one or two pieces of advice that is relevant to them and, and that may be relevant to people working at a startup as well? Uh, get some sleep. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's, that's somewhat joking, but mostly serious. Get some sleep. I, I myself am one of the worst breakers of this. I spent most of my, you know, up until a couple of few, you know, a couple few years ago, I would work, I would sleep maybe four, four to six hours a night, um, for two weeks straight. And then I would, um, uh, crash for like 14 hours on a Saturday. And that just is, was not healthy long term. Now, now my wife, you know, Erica's like way more, way, way better at life than I am. And so she's, you know, got me on this seven, at least seven hours of sleep thing. And I'm a, literally a better person. Um, guess I, agree, I agree with that, man. I, yeah. I read the book, uh, why we sleep last year. That was probably my number one read. Yeah. Like, most recommended. And it's, I mean, it's basically a book with like all the evidence of why you should sleep more. Um, so that plus the purchase of this, the, uh, yeah. strap, uh, man, I've heard that thing's awesome. Dude, it's, it's great because it's just like, you need this much sleep. And I'm like, really? Do I really need that much sleep? And it's like, sure enough, I started like taking the advice of, you know, technology. And it's like, oh yeah, I guess I was tired. I did, like just didn't even, it didn't register right. because I too was the four to six hour person um, yeah. and even prided myself on that um, when it was really a much, much bigger part of the tech and startup culture of this like hustle and grind you know, uh, sleep when you're dead kind of, uh, mentality. I was very much a part of that system and I still fight it. So definitely not say, not professing to be, uh, cured by a book and a whoop strap, but, um, Oh yeah. I just used to be like, I'd rather sleep for a quarter of my life instead of a third. Yeah. And that makes sense. But then I think about everything else I care about, which is like quality over quantity. I'm like, Oh shoot. That's just <laughs> conflicting values there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the other piece of advice I would give them, give people is really, really, really be uh, intentional about who you partner with. Um, and it doesn't, 
you know, it, it can be on all different levels. It's very clearly important as what investors are working with because, you know, you need to be asking yourself, hey, do I want that face on my phone at four o'clock in the morning calling me when either we're celebrating or we're doing the opposite? Um, and do I trust them to honor me and protect me as I trust them with my life's work, right? Something I'm literally so passionate about, I've probably gone into serious debt with, I've probably foregone salary with, I've probably had to like spend all my currency with my partner or spouse with, right? Like, do I trust them? Like, can I trust them like that? Like, like a ride or die co-founder, right? And I think um, just founders really should think about that. And it's, it's really important too, because look, if you're, if you're cooking with gas, like you're going to have a lot of top tier VCs willing to write you the, the check you want, right? But you're also the same VCs that might likely forget about you the moment that you're not going to be a decacorn. So yeah, right. just that, that piece and, and even just not with the VCs, you know, the co-founders too, right? And the, and the employees. Most founders don't realize that when they build their next Google or Facebook or whatever unicorn is their favorite, most, people don't, most founders don't think about all the people that have to fire on the way to that success and all the heartbreak of betrayal potentially on that path to success. And look, don't, you can go the completely the wrong way and just hire your friends, which I would not do, but make sure you're working with people of high integrity that also like their pedigree and integrity should be line in line with being top class for, for what you're working with. That's good advice, man. I, um, I, I heard you say just how important it is, uh, not just because it's startups, but given the macro environment, um, which of course is not just the pandemic, but everything else going on socially around that. It's an election year. Uh, there's huge police violence issues, um, which is of course flaming racial issues, um, not just in the Midwest, but around the country, around the globe. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that this topic is getting the oxygen that it needs to talk more about it. And uh, but before I really do open up that topic, I do want to just fully and vulnerably say, I don't know the right way to talk about this topic, but I know that the wrong way is to not talk about it. Um, and so I'm, I'm just curious if you'd be willing to share a little bit of your experience, because I, I know you've written a series of, uh, of really powerful articles and, and candidly, I learned things about your experience growing up black in the Midwest that, I just, even though you're my friend as a kid growing up, I wasn't exposed to, um, and, and that I will never fully understand because I grew up definitely not black for this thing from black, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, um, you, did, you did some good DJing back then, so I don't, I don't uh, know about for this thing, but that, now you're just lying. I was not, <laughs> I, was, I was not a good DJ at all. <laughs> um, no, thanks, Matt. No, I really appreciate that. And, uh, I appreciate the way you, you, you brought, brought us into this topic. I mean, the, the fact is that, um, you know, racism is, is, is an issue um, and it has always been an issue. And, you know, you know, the first piece that the, the piece I kind of broke my silence with recently on um, at least optically on the internet was, was titled racism won't die in 2020. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, a lot of people read that piece and, and left feeling a lot more positive than they might have thought they would after reading the title, but it's, it's just a very, you know, um, clear point of like, hey, what's going to be different this time around? Um, that actually, and that didn't call just for like a quick band aid potentially to appease 
um, a perceived rioting crowd or whatever, um, but what could be driving long-term impact to where our kids or our kids' kids um, aren't going through a similar issue. Um, I think one of the things that's worth exploring here is that we've been talking a lot about implicit bias, which is a term I think a lot of us have been familiar with for a long time, but some people it's, it's still a new term and just kind of this, you know, maybe less than conscious uh, bias you might have against a certain people or group. And um, the, the note there is bias against, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's bias for as well, that, that people might not quite quickly understand. And in, in venture, I think about it as this, you know, I'm looking at, you know, 150 deals, potentially potential deals a month, right? And I'm going to do maybe one, maybe two of those, invest one or two of those. And so if I'm, um, and I don't have data, these aren't publicly traded companies, right? They, there's no like, you know, five years of historicals, right? Um, sure, there's a pitch and business plan, whatever. But at the end of the day, you have to be like, a bunch of subjective things waved into like a couple objective things. Um, do I believe it? Am I excited? Am I going to do it? And do I believe in that person? Again, the team's most valuable part of this business. So if I have whittled it down from 150 to five and one of them is, and, and they're all, you know, objectively at this point equal, I'm probably going to lean with my gut of who I, vibe with right i mean i mean that's just the path of least resistance that most people naturally draw themselves to and guess what like culturally you're going to vibe with people that are culturally similar to you and whether you acknowledge that as racial or not like uh, i mean race and culture are obviously separate but you know it's, it's just a thing so understanding that there's bias for and bias against as well um and i think um the the one Thing I'd like to add to maybe the, the post I did before uh, recently, the venture post about being good stewards of founders, is that if you're meeting or working with someone, it doesn't have to be a founder with investment, it could be a coworker, it could be um, you know, another founder in your ecosystem. Understanding though, even though that you might be treating them as a good steward and, and aspiring to do so in that moment, that they probably haven't been treated that way by some other people in their past, present, and future and seeing what type of an ally you can be to right those wrongs preemptively um, if possible, right? So um, I'll stop there and- Yeah, what, yeah. What, are some, what are some ways to be more proactive to help, um, help founders, black founders, um, black VCs, which there are not a whole lot of, mm -hmm. um, uh, and I mean, there's not as many black founders uh, as well that are getting VC investment, right? But it, and what you just illustrated, I know is a big part of that dynamic, right? Because mm -hmm. if VCs are predominantly white and it comes down to who do you vibe with and what's your culture like, it's, it's not, while that person might not see that as racist, mm -hmm. that is in essence what racism is, at least to my understanding. I'm not trying to speak as an expert here, yeah. um, but like at least in seeing my own bias, right? Of who are we going to put on the powder keg stage? And I'm using air quotes because it's a virtual stage now. Mm -hmm. um, or who do we cover in terms of the Spark newsletter that we send out every week? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's to, to me, um, 
some of that work is around just being more intentional to say, hey, have I gone outside my circle of friends um, that may look a lot like me, right? And by nature of being in the Midwest, by nature of um, that's where my network has grown from, may be predominantly white and may not break into some of those other circles. And then how else can I get into those circles or at least have connections into those circles to be pulling uh, more founders. And I'm, I'm more, one of the things I tried to catch myself doing there is asking you to do the work of coming up and telling me how I should be more, um, be less racist, I guess, is a better way of saying that. Um, and I'm trying to be conscious of that too, of not, uh, not necessarily putting all of the work on uh, someone else to say, hey, tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Tell yeah. me what to do and I'll do it, right? Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, look, I can't tell you what to do, but I can give you some frameworks to maybe think around, right? And yeah, that'd be great. I think, I think that's really the best I can offer. I, th- I believe the power of suggestion is more powerful here than a mandate, right? So um, the, I think an opportunity for a thought exercise is, you know, and you, Matt, you, you're great at, you actually like one of the best people to be in a meeting with, like you're, you know, super fun, regardless of who's in the meeting with you. But, you know, think, you know, whether it's you or somebody else, it's thinking about this. Um, think about yourself in the context of being, interacting with someone that you like really vibe with. Like, how does that person, how does that version of you look, feel, talk, offer? Mm. And now think of yourself with someone that you don't really vibe with. Like they didn't piss you off. Like they're not bad people, but like maybe you're tired. Maybe it's the last meeting of the day. Maybe like they're fine, but like we wouldn't hang out and think about yourself and the way you act, offer, give of yourself, um, interact with that person. Mm. And those two different versions of yourself, they're two different versions, right? And how do you allow that first version to be more and more that time, that version that you lean in, lean into being? um with people who don't look like you right and i think that can be a foundational piece and thought exercise that leads you to saying like well maybe i would have offered this intro or maybe i would have said i'll give them a shot at you know um going to the next stage in my you know maybe maybe i'll have a follow-up meeting with them right or um you know something right i don't think you know i don't think diverse founders or co you know colleagues are looking to be gifted anything i think it's it's really just truly to actually have the same opportunity and the same access, right? Yeah. And, 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 and that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, equity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, that's, that's really helpful, man. Um, uh, are there any, um, you know, you, you mentioned the title of that post, uh, you know, being that racism is alive and well, um, <laughs> our racism will not die. Um, but that the end was a little bit more positive. Yeah. Um, what is your hope for racism in America or racism in tech? Um, yeah. what, what do you hope to see in terms of behavior change, in terms of cultural change um, right. here over the next few years? Right. Yeah. I mean, my hope that is that it's more than a moment, right? My hope is that the discussion we're having around the you know, horrific murder of George Floyd and um, you know, Brianna Taylor and others, right? That it's not just a momentary, like, you know, this happened. And now three months from now, 
we're not talking about it and nothing's really changed, right? Or there's a bunch of reactive decisions made and appeasements, right? But at the end of the day, that looks a lot more like theater than realistic, you know, uh, you know, impact, right? And so, you know, towards the end of that post, I mean, I think like, you know, I challenge people to think about if this matters to you today, how is that going to be reflected by you in three months, six months, a year, two years, 10 years, right? Um, you know, if you're, if you're um, a police officer and this it matters to you, but in five years, you're not going to hold your fellow police officer accountable when you see them acting wrongly, then did it really matter to you, right? If, you know, if you're anyone, right? If you're anyone, if you're a VC and, you know, three years from now, you are having your candidate pool for who you hire next into your firm and it's 99.9% white men, um, like, what did you really do, right? And hold, everyone has their own role to play and their own versions of themselves down the line from now to hold themselves accountable to. And I, I believe that there's opportunity here because I think enough people have sat and thought about it to say they like, you know, I actually want to be a different person or, or make a different decision or be making decisions that are impacting on this issue, not just now, but on an ongoing basis. Yeah. I, I 100% agree with that. I, I hope we see that change as well. Um, and I think, yeah. I think that's a huge opportunity. Um, not just in the Midwest, uh, not just in tech outside the coast, but just globally as a whole. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. I mean, what? I did, my subheader was that although racism won't die this year, this could be the year we give it a terminal illness, right? Yeah. And, and that terminal illness is everyone acting today and deciding today to, to be that version of themselves on an ongoing basis and holding themselves accountable to it. Well, I, uh, I certainly am going to do my part, uh, at least try to control the thing that I can control the most, which is myself. Um, and I, I know I'm not going to do it perfectly, but, um, I, I want to make sure that this is more than a moment and, uh, we've done a lot to kind of change some things internally here at powder keg. It, it is something that we've um, really tried to be intentional about at least the last several years. And it's been a big part of the conversation, but I, I think it's clear that it needs to be a bigger part of the conversation. Um, and there's just so much more work to be done and just a huge opportunity that as we make these changes, it's just going to be a better, it's going to be a better world. It's going to be a better tech environment. It's going to be a better Midwest. Um, and, and I look forward to that. Uh, and, and I look forward to doing the work to make it happen too. Uh, cause it's going to take all of us doing something. Mm-hmm. What other big, uh, I, I'd like to close on, um, what are some of the other big opportunities that you're seeing in Midwest tech right now? And what are you most excited about? Yeah. I mean, look, the, the world we're living in right now has impacted uh, a lot of businesses, right? Um, I think, and, and, and the future of doing business and work is forever going to change. I think a fascinating thought exercise is that so many of the traditional venture folks that said, I need to do a deal that's in my backyard so I can walk into a board meeting, or I need to have, you know, multiple in-person meetings before betting on a founder. A lot of them have written checks now, virtually, never meeting someone face-to-face in person, Right. That's crazy. A lot of the people who said this is not possible have said now, wait, worked out pretty great. So the fact that like, not only can you do a company anywhere, but you can fund a company anywhere. That's a very interesting dynamic. 
I would say also the fact that the Midwest has always had companies that are more capital efficient um, and resilient to this type of a, a, a you know cycle or whatever you want to call it. Right. I don't want to, I don't want to be political either. I, but I, I think we'd be joking ourselves if we didn't call it something, yeah. um, it, you know, you know, as valuations have gone down in the market, you know, by you know 30% or whatever the latest number is, guess what? Midwestern companies were already more conservatively valued as much as 30 to 40% anyway. So you do that math, right? I think, I think now is a really interesting moment where, and my partner Victor has written a really interesting series on why the Midwest, it's a four part series talking about culture, talking about costume business, talking about resources, um, talking about talent, right? I mean, now is a really interesting time, especially as, you know, you, t- you, you mentioned uh, coastal employees seeing like, well, I could buy way more for a third of the, the price of my living experience. Those same companies are allowing remote work. Those same employees may decide to relocate to the Midwest and who knows, maybe when they're bored of that larger, larger company, they want to go and start their own or, or join a, a tech com- startup here. So I think, I think, you know, being bullish on the Midwest has never been a better, better position to have. 100% agree, man. Um, how can people in the powder cake community support you and what you're doing? Yeah, look, I, um, I love talking to founders. I love being helpful even when we don't invest. Um, you know, M25 prides itself on being as family friendly as we can, whether or not you're part of our portfolio or not. So, you know, please reach out. Uh, we'd love to, we'd love to talk to any founders listening and, and hoping to, to connect with us. Um, and, and yeah, be, be good stewards of each other, right? I mean, we're all in this together. Um, I tell people that if you're in the conversation broadly anyway, like you're probably pretty talented and you're, you're going to be successful. So don't worry, don't worry too much. Uh, just, just let's be good people while we're doing it. Awesome, man. Well, I, I hope a lot more people uh, do get in touch with M25. Um, you all are prolific. I, I know uh, Crunchbase came out recently with like most active VCs uh, by state. And I think you were the only VC maybe that had multiple states. Um, so you're, you're active and, and prolific, not just in, you know, the bigger tech hubs like Chicago or, uh, I don't know. I mean, we're super proud that most of our portfolio is not in Chicago. We love Chicago. Yeah. But Chicago's great. Yeah. We've always seen it as a hub and spoke model and and we're, we're deep on our spokes. Right. So you look at our, some of our best companies, they are, they're all over the Midwest. So yeah, 100% man. Cool. Thanks. This was great. Absolutely. Thanks, Matt. Always, always good time. You bet. Anything. I- all right. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. Also huge thanks to Mike Assem of M25. Go check him out at m25vc.com. And for links to Mike's social profiles and the other people, companies, and resources mentioned in this episode, head on over to powderkeg.com and check out the show notes. If you would like to discover even more exciting companies, stories, and strategies to help you reach your full potential, get the inside scoop with Powder Keg's hand-curated newsletter, The Spark, delivered to your inbox each week with the tech news and opportunities outside of Silicon Valley that you really need to know. Just go to powderkeg.com, sign up right on the homepage, and each Thursday, you'll get an email directly from me with the most important stories, trends, and companies in tech. Uh, This newsletter is curated by some of the most connected people in tech hubs between the coasts with insights you're not going to find anywhere else. So again, that's powderkeg.com, P-O-W-D-E-R-K-E-G, powderkeg, all one word, dot com. And to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com 
slash iTunes. If you left us a review while you're there, I would be forever grateful. And if you already have, thank you so, so much. We'll catch you next time on the Powder Keg Podcast. (laughs) 